You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Thou shalt not steal. Are you ready for it? It is as simple as it looks and sounds and as complex as human beings are. Um, so we're going to get super into it, um, but I'm excited. It's been good to walk through these and really see how it meant so much to ancient uh, nomadic Israel in the moment and how much today it is just as powerful for us. Um, and of course, always under the grace uh, and mercy of Jesus Christ. Um, so today we're on the eighth commandment or the eighth word, as we're calling it, the ten words in this series. And you know, diving into them and going back into the, the history and the context is so good because you could just look at these lists and just be like, okay, just don't do these things. But of course, like we said, it's simple. Like don't murder, don't, have, don't uh, commit adultery, don't steal. It's, it's simple, but it also is very complex because humans are very complex. Um, but also, this is just the 10, right, of the commandments. But uh, if you remember, there's over 600 laws. So think about this, a, a nomadic people who were raised in a nation not their own, uh, or by people not their own, who now have no home, who are out here, and they're just given over 600 laws of how to live. Like, that's a lot to bear, right? At Hub City, we have two laws, like wear clothes and serve in kids' ministry. Like, that's it. If you do those two, you're, you're a part of Hub City, right? But like this was a completely new way of life for them, and they needed to be have their hand held. This was like a new birth for them. If you th- if you remember in our Exodus story, it's crazy. The first two things besides crossing over the Red Sea and freeing them from Egypt, which are pretty big, but the two the first two things that God provides for the people is water and food. All right, He gives them clean drinking water, and man, I mean, we're talking like the base functions of what it means to just survive and live. So these are kind of like newborn people, right, that are learning this, and this is just the beginning of the journey, right? This is, we're looking back at something now that we have seen a long history of what it means to follow God. So, of course, our job today is to look at what does thou shalt not steal mean for ancient desert-dwelling ethnic Israel, what it meant for the Israelites moving forward, and, of course, what it means for us today as, if you're a believer, you're grafted into this great family of Abraham's let me pray and let's get into it. God, thank you for this, for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you that we're not just up here making stuff up, but we can go to your truth and your word and see what you have for us today. And I just pray that you speak so much deeper than any English words can say, that you speak to our heart and you change us and mold us into the people of you, God, that we can truly be the people of Yahweh. Uh, so thank you, God, for your word, and we just give it to you. I pray in your name. Amen. So this last Christmas, um, a few months ago, uh, we uh, always put up lights in our house. And every year I've kind of added more and more decorations and more lights. And uh, I think it looks pretty good. I don't have a picture of it. I didn't want to say it looks good and then put it up and have you all boo it. But um, I put up all the lights. My kids were technically around me, so I'm supposed to say my family (laughs) put up lights. But, you know, you know how it goes. Um, So we put up lights, lights, it was great. But then we, a few years ago, we bought... Um, what has become a just treasured decoration, and that's this two-foot-tall kind of light-up Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Super cute. The nose blinks. It's awesome, okay? So we bought it. We put it out. It's like our favorite decoration of kids. Of course, the kids just love it. Well, this past year, woke up one morning, 
And it's right outside in our front yard, and it's always like welcoming people, and we just want it to be a good thing, whatever. And my, my youngest daughter typically like runs to the front window a lot of the times, and just in her wonderment and awe, she looks out the front. And I think uh, my wife and I are making breakfast or something, and we just hear her say, where's Rudolph? And I'm thinking, oh, it's, it's daytime, of course. Like, the lights are off. Like, she can't see this rather large decoration in our yard. That's a little strange. So we open the door, and sure enough, there's this green extension cord to nothing. And it is just gone. And we go out there, and I look around the corner. I look under the car. I look in the street. I look everywhere. Rudolph was stolen from us. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stolen from, but it's a strange feeling, of course. You feel a little violated, and even more strange to have to explain it to kids who have never had something stolen from them. Of course, their siblings have taken stuff from them, uh, but my kids could not comprehend why someone would do that. My daughter said, don't they know that we loved Rudolph? (laughs) I know. Right, my oldest asked, that Rudolph was our favorite thing about Christmas. <laughs> and before I could get any word in about a rather certain special baby, um, the tears were flowing, and I kid you not, I won't say which kid, but one of my kids looks at me and then in their own distraughtness throws up on the ground. <laughs> not sick, just upset. It was a memorable moment, it was really odd. Stealing from another person is a fascinatingly tough thing to explain, right? Because you're trying to get into the psyche of the person who took something that wasn't theirs. And I tried to like rationalize it to the kids, right? I was like, well, maybe they just really needed a friend and we were being really generous, right? Or maybe they were like, there's a light on this thing that won't light on one side. So I'm taking it home to my workshop. My dear, I'll fix it up there and I'll bring it back here. Like who knows, right? But I think the even harder thing about stealing that that gets me is I get it, right? I get it that like, If there was little to no moral code on your life, you thought that others were not more important than yourself, then yourself and your desires and your needs become the ultimate want, right? That just be, I get that. I understand that. And I'm trying to, through Jesus and through the Spirit, be changed by that. But I do understand that when you are king of your life or queen of your life, like, then it's all what you want. And I'm thankful for rules and and laws and stuff from our nation, from kind of being protected from that stuff. But what we're talking about when we talk about the Ten Commandments, talk about what God is giving his people, these are deep laws written on the hearts of humans. This is how he created people to be. Like the Ten Commandments are, are they're reminders of how he created humans to be, and this is what my people shall look like. Right? We are born bringing nothing into the world. We're hopefully raised into having something, right? Then somewhere along the line, we work for what we have and we're rewarded for this hard work is then this, in a sense, it's ours. But for the people of God, right? Everything is given to us by God. Everything is a gift. Everything is something from Him. You know, in Exodus 20, before the Ten Commandments, this is what he says. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Okay, so it just starts right there, right? I'm the Lord your God. You had nothing, and I brought you out here. Now, this is interesting. I don't know if you remember this from their Exodus journey, but they did have some treasures. Look at this, Exodus 12:35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. This is when they were escaping from Egypt. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And that last line is like less of a, ha ha, I gotcha, and more of like a prophecy to fulfill, right? But they had some material possessions. But in the eyes of God and his kingdom that he's bringing to earth, they, the things that they have to contribute, the biggest commodity they had was just their lives. It wasn't this gold. It wasn't the silver. It's what, not what the Egyptians could give them. It was just who they were. Now, imagine if it went this way, if this is how our scripture is read. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so do whatever you want, right? Like just, you're free, you do you. Go for it. In a desert with with nothing, right? You can imagine, like, that would not go well. What if the you do you is a sinful, broken person? What if you were raised in Egypt as a slave and have the wrong moral code imprinted on your lifestyle? So that even what you think is right is already off base, right? What if you is actually more destructive than you think? Here's just a few verses. You could have found a ton, but a few of just how the scriptures describe it. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? James 3, 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And of course, this the, the topper, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for God to free his people and then set them free to govern themselves just is not going to work, thus these Ten Commandments. And we've walked through a bunch of them already, and as we've seen, and today we're at to to thou shall not steal, and the question becomes, steal what? Right? We've learned that they have some possessions, silver, gold, clothing, livestock, some of that kind of stuff. They left in such a haste, of course, that some family units, as they had to scrounge together, probably have more than other family units. So the call, the first thing, the call to not steal was more than just be content with what you have. It was also to be a generous people, for God is generous. Some will have little, some will have much, right there in that desert. Don't just be content, but be generous. God has already, like we said, provided clean water, clean drinking, uh, drinking water, daily bread for the people. He's being generous. Um, And here's the thing, just because you have, you're, you're taken care of and you have stuff does not make you a generous person, right? You can have things and you can be taken care of, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are giving away, right? The practice of giving away from yourself for others' benefit. It's for others to gain. That is the profit for us. So in that, do not steal is also a reminder to be generous. But we're not just talking about things, okay? We're not just talking about taking away from things, we're talking ancient Israel stealing people, okay? Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 
Okay, so we're, talk, we're not just talking who stole my spatula, it's like who stole my man, you know, like, like where is he? Now if people are getting stolen, that's another matter, that's huge, right? Because of course now we're talking of image bearers sinning against image bearers. And, and Randall walked us through last week with, with murder and adultery that, that what it does, it distorts people in defining others as commodities to be consumed, right? Not image bearers, not beautiful, not more important, right? but these commodities to be consumed, not a people to be loved. The issue is stealing is inherently selfish and for personal gain. These commands were for human flourishing by loving God and loving others. Outside of self is the focus here, right? But sin always focuses inwards upon ourselves. You cannot selfishly take from others and self-sacrificially love others at the same time. Those just do not work together. So the commandment to not steal is for the self, right? It's for the self of the person to continue to grow in the practice of self-sacrifice. What's the great opposite of self-sacrifice? Pride, right? Pride is that. And I, I, this is a, a book I've loved and cherished, but Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he just puts it this way. I think it's a great quote. What I want to get it clear is that pride is essentially competitive, it is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. All right, that's from his work, Mere Christianity. Self-focus, not others-focus. So God gives his people a whole nother stone tablet that is just the core tenets of how to love others, to give this life, this life-giving otherness, not just to take it. Now let's talk about the word steal. Steal is really interesting here. The Hebrew word is ganaf, right? Which is translated, of course, to steal or to kidnap, but it also is translated to deceive or trick, okay? It's really interesting. It's not just about taking something physically, but it's also about the theft of trust, the theft of innocence, the theft of reliability, Leviticus 19.11 pairs it this way. It says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. That, cover, that covers a lot more than just taking something from someone. These are all, of course, descriptives more of the devil than of the Lord. Look at this. John 10.10, Jesus himself speaking of the devil and his followers. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Deep into Revelation, the, the Satan character is, is literally called the deceiver of the whole world. So think about that. Just take that for what it is, stealing and deceiving. These are more representing an image of the enemy than the Lord, of the devil than God, right? But you know who cannot be deceived? Yahweh. Think of the very beginning. Adam and Eve were deceived, right? We all know this story. They took the forbidden fruit, then what did they do? They hid. They hid away, right? Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Of course God found them, right? The garden was his presence. Like it is, <laughs> everything is God. They were trying to deceive God by hiding, but they were the ones deceived thinking they could hide from God. This futile way of living was birthed for humanity, right? This form of stealing in the form of deception is so prevalent throughout scriptures. 
and even today. But the irony is that deception is not just stealing from others, right? It's the self-deceptive lie that you are going to get away with it. It's really deceiving yourself because especially for ancient Israel, everything they had was God's provision. So stealing from anyone is really stealing from God. So this commandment in a huge way is to live in an honorable way with one another, and how the people honored one another is also how they honored God. Think of Sabbath. Okay, we just read about Sabbath. Jesse preached on it a few weeks ago. Like stealing from someone six days of hard work robs them of that restful provision of Sabbath on the seventh day, right? Which is a commandment from God. This is hurting how the community honors God together. Also for the people's hard work, they they were commanded in Leviticus 19 to not harvest to the edge of their fields and if stuff falls on the ground to not completely pick it up. You know why? So that the poor and the needy could come into their fields and take their fill. It was supposed to be a work of working hard and you get your reward, but also you get to be generous with your neighboring community. Theft robs even that generous provision. So these all hurt the community at large and takes away from others experiencing the full generous provision from God. So not stealing is for the self to reflect this self-sacrificing image of God, and not stealing is for the community as a whole to experience God's generous provision together. Now, we could go on and on, of course, about what stealing does to the psyche and what it is, but I'm very narrative-driven. I love story, and I think there's a story that I want to walk us through that I think will just, we'll just explain a lot of things, and we'll see the destructive power of theft and deception in the self and the community. So if you want to follow along, this story is found in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua 6 and 7. I'm going to give a little bit of background. The background is just awesome. It's just an epic story, Um, but I think it'll be helpful to see where the Israelite community is when the theft and destruction or deceit happens and how destructive it is. So years pass, years after the Ten Commandments, okay? Years after Moses has passed away, the Lord appoints his successor Joshua, okay, to take over and lead the people. The Lord is guiding them in and through the promised land, and they come up against this mighty roadblock in the form of a fortress called Jericho. Okay, you guys have heard this story before. It's epic, famous story, but the Lord comes to Joshua and says, I've given this mighty city over to your hands. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days. We're not going to get into like the weirdness of it, um, but it also is like this was just God's game plan for what's going to happen. So six days of marching, and then Joshua, this is Joshua 6, on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. So when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great joy, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Sounds very Sabbathy, right? Six days of work, and then on the seventh, rest in sweet victory, right? It's pretty awesome. So they do the six days, and then on the seventh day, they blow all the trumpets and horns, and they shout with a great shout, and what happens? This is Joshua 6.20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. I bet, honestly, if we yelled right now super loud, this building would fall down. (laughs) Don't do that. So that the people went up into the city. That's for very different reasons, though. Um, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Victory! Right? But there's a line right before this that sometimes gets mixed, missed. Right before they talk about the shouting and the victory, Joshua gives this charge. This is Joshua 6, 18 and 19. 
But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Okay, and everyone's just hyped up. They're like, yeah, yeah, Josh, we got it, we got it. We're just, let's just go, let's take the city, right? So, fast forward, the taste of victory is so sweet. You know the story, they go in, it's beautiful. Jericho falls down. It was so sweet that they felt unstoppable. So as they're moving with the Lord on their side, they're like, who could be against us? We have God on our side. So the very next chapter, if you go to chapter 7, we read that they are continuing to move into the promised land, and Joshua once again sees this great city fortress of Ai. I, I kept saying it AI, it literally is AI, which now means something very different. If I said it's a city of AI, that means very different for us, but it's I, AI. So, greatly inspired by their flawless victory at Jericho, the spies that were sent to see what is happening in AI, how many people do they have, what do we need to do, they come back literally, maybe not literally, editorially laughing at how easy this is going to be. Okay, we learn later there are about 12,000 men in AI. The spies say this to Joshua. This is a seven, Joshua 7, 3. Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Two or 3,000, go and attack 12,000. Do not make the whole people go up there, for they are few. Okay, you can like just feel the confidence building of like, oh, we got this. No big deal. So verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them back. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. What happened? Jericho, they didn't have to do anything but walk around and yell. That's, that's, my kids do that all the time. Like, it's very simple to do that, right? But then all of a sudden now, what happened? That did not go as planned. Joshua has no idea. Verse 6, Joshua tears his clothes, and, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites just to destroy us? Joshua is scared, and everyone will now hear how weak Israel is, and they'll come from behind, and they'll destroy us. And Joshua says this to God, verse 9, he says, And what? will you do for your great name? All right, if we get destroyed, what are you going to do, God? <laughs> Yikes. So, Joshua 7.10, the Lord says to Joshua, easy, tiger warrior, okay? Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Here's the deal. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my co covenant, and I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Verse 12, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. So the Lord tells Joshua to bring all of Israel before him, tribe by tribe, family by family, and the Lord, through Joshua, will pick the culprit. Okay, remember, there are lots of Israelites in the desert. There are lots of people. 
And here's what's to happen to this culprit, 7.15. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, to flip the story a bit, because we can, because we have the completed scriptures, we're actually going to start back at the very beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, because we are told who did this crime. 7-1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Okay, so we know what's going on. We know as readers and rememberers, but Joshua in the story had no idea. So just sit in that for a second. God never warned Joshua about this, right? He didn't say like, oh no, don't go up there. Don't go up to those AI, you know, like you have some unfinished business. People died because of this, right? The people of Israel's faith, what did they say? It was shaken. It was melted like water. Now, Joshua's not perfect in what and all he does, but he didn't just throw up his hands and say, hey guys, Jericho was a fluke. Obviously, God's not real. Obviously, this God abandoned us. Everyone just fend for yourself, right? If God's not just going to do what I want, when I want it, how I want it, then he must not be real or doesn't care, right? He didn't do that. He turned to the Lord, yes, in some anger. Why did you send us here to just kill us? But he asked him, what happened? Why? Why did you do this? Why did you abandon us? And here's the thing, the Lord answered him. Like how often in our lives do we go to God and say, God, why did you do this? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you abandon me? And potentially what we can learn from Joshua is like maybe the question more is like, where have I gone wrong? Where have we broken your commandments? Where have we broken your covenant, Lord? Because he will answer. As David put it so many years later, Psalm 139, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That needs to be the cry out. So back to our story. Achan is watching all of this happen. He knows what he did. He knows the losses the people had suffered. They're gathering all of Israel together. Surely, out of the whole nation of Israel, they could not pick him out in a crowd. Surely this was not that big of a deal. I mean, who hasn't done this before? Joshua 7:16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Okay, that's Achan's tribe. There still is thousands in there, right? Okay, so it's not ideal. <laughs> it's not ideal that they picked my tribe, but, you know, there's still a lot of people. Verse 17. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. That's my clan. Okay, you know, like it's getting, you know, it's getting a little sweaty in here. He brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. That's grandpa. Verse 18, and he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Like the amount of sweat and regret rolling down this person's back right now. Verse 19, Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Guys, when the Lord is the one who judges, there is no hiding. There's right there. That's insane to pick out one person in an entire nation, the one person that had that transgression. There's no getting away with it. 
The crazy thing is that at any point in the story, God could have just called out, it was him, <laughs> it was Achan, here you go, pick that guy, right? But just the drama of the fighting and the losing, the picking and the choosing, yet who until the very last minute still did not confess? Like, was there at any point where Achan could have just been like, yeah, it's me, like, I, I did this, like, I don't want, you know, I, I confess this, whatever, right? He waited till he was found and called out. But not only had theft grabbed his heart, also deception. Again, more than just deceiving others, he deceived himself that he could steal from the Lord and get away with it. Verse 20, Achan answered to Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw him on the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about coveting and kind of like the deepness, not just like, I want that, but just the deepness of it. So Joshua sent messengers to find the stolen goods, and sure enough, there they were in Achan's tent. So according to the Lord's instructions, of course, that we have been waiting for to find this person, they took Achan out of the valley and they put him and all he had to death. They set up a pile of stones then over the body as a reminder for the rest of the Israelite community. This was not just an individual sin that didn't affect anyone but Achan. This was a violation that affected the whole community. Achan didn't just steal from Jericho, right? He stole the victor's glory from God by thinking he earned this victory himself that somehow he was the one that brought down the walls of Jericho. Where was all the silver and gold supposed to go? To God's treasury, right? This was the Lord's victor's spoil. Instead, he wanted some of that glory. And this, of course, is where we're supposed to see ourselves, right? It's where we're supposed to see ourselves in all humanity. We want that glory. It's, it, we have this bentness to want to take or steal or have some of the glory for ourselves, so again, God knows this. So not stealing is for the self to reflect the self-sacrificing image of God. Not stealing is for the community to experience God's generous provision together. And now we can learn that not stealing is for God to have all the glory of the generous provision. The irony is that we think we can steal from God. What we can steal from God is only a fraction of what he freely wants to give his people. James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It's not something to take or to steal. It's something to be received. By right, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart of this commandment, it's not just about not stealing. It's how much can you trust God to be your generous provider? And in doing so, reflecting that in the same way to others. Just like do not murder, the command isn't just don't take life, but it's rather to give life, because that's what reflects our life-giving God. Do not steal is not just don't take, it's about stewarding what you have been given for the glory of God and the good of others, because God is the great provider of all things, and we lack nothing because of him. Now, I want to end it here, and I want us to just a couple things to ponder of this story of Achan. If something gripped it in you, I just want you, whether you want to close your eyes or just think about 
in, in your own life, I want to ask a few questions. And just think about this. Learning from Achan's story, what in my life am I hiding from God? And if you think, well, I don't know, God knows everything, just, just think about this. Answer it this way. It's probably one and the same. What in my life am I hiding so that others won't know this about me? That's typically the same thing. Is my community hurting because of my deception or benefiting because of my generosity? These are just things to think about and ponder. In what ways am I struggling to trust God as my generous provider? All right, the encouragement I want to leave with us today is this. If you feel overwhelmed or crushed by sin in your life, regardless of what it is, and all these commandments are convicting and and it feels like the weights are being piled on top, know that these commandments were never given to us to say you need to be perfect, right? They were always given to point us towards the one who was perfect for us, and that is Jesus, right? The freedom that his perfection brings means that sin does not have a hold on you, right? It is not Lord over you. Jesus is. The ancient Israelites were no longer slaves in Egypt, and anyone who believes in Christ today as Savior is no longer a slave to sin. And I want to end with Romans 6 and his encouragement here as we go to respond. Romans 6.10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. I hope that gives you freedom, right? This is not, this shouldn't be burdensome. It can be convicting and we need to work through this stuff, but there is grace and there is freedom in the perfection that Christ has done for us. Now let's respond to that. You know how we respond. If you're part of Hope City, we sing loud. We sing our praises to our God. We pray, pray with each other. I'll be in the back if you want to pray. I'd love to pray with you um, or pray with one another. Um, we give because we don't want things like finances to just hold, keep us tight and hold us together. This is my kingdom that I'm building, but we want to freely give so that we as a community can bless the community of Albany. Um, and of course, we received Joel's prepared uh, communion for us. Thank you, Joel. And um, it's just to think about Jesus' sacrifice, to think him saying, this bread is my body, this blood is my perfect blood sacrificed for you so that you can live under grace and not the law. So let me pray and let's go to the tables and let's sing praises to our God.